woman was jailed for endangering her fetus. She wasn't even pregnant. Uh, we'll talk about that with Dave Rowland. He'll be on about uh, 10 minutes from now at uh, 11.15, give or take. Live streaming police traffic stops. Is it unconstitutional? A piece in the Washington Post. I would argue it's not, but we'll, uh, we'll kick that all around with uh, Dave Rowland uh, when he gets on board. Bitcoin, I, I was talking about this yesterday. Uh, Bitcoin and, and these uh, digital currencies are taking a hit. Mark Mobius predicts Bitcoin could crash 40% to $10,000 next year. Woo, that's quite the hit. Uh, speaking of a hit, the stock market is down. All, uh, all of the indices are, uh, are down. Uh, and I'm not sure what's spooking them. But they are down. In the meantime, the uh, attorney general from uh, Montana is uh, sending letters to UPS and FedEx demanding information on their altered policies on firearms and whether they're in cooperation with federal agencies. What makes this suspicious is that they both happened at the same time. They changed their uh, delivery method. Uh, United Parcel um, apparently wants people who are shipping, and these are FFL dealers, uh, firearm, federally firearms li federal firearms licensed dealers. If you're going to ship a gun, you got to say it's guns. If it's going to be ammo, you got to say it's ammo. If it's going to be parts for firearms, you got to label it as parts, and you can't mix them. According to these reports, FedEx and UPS now require FFL holders to create three separate shipping accounts. Firearms uh, is one, Firearm parts is two, and all other firearm-related products. Under this three-tier system, gun sellers cannot mix and match shipments, which reveals your company um, whether they are shipping a gun, gun part, or gun-related item. Curiously, FedEx and UPS both came out with that rule at the same time, and that made the Attorney General a little bit curious as to whether or not this was something that uh, was mandated by the federal government. I think orchestrated is the word you're looking for. Well, it could be mandated, too. They could be <laughs> forcing them. Uh, he went on to allege the new shipping policies, which create highly specific categories of shipping, make it impossible for gun sellers to mix firearms, firearm parts, and other firearms paraphernalia. In addition to creating three distinct shipping groups, they now apparently demand that gun store owners retain documents about what specific items those shipments contain and make that information available to FedEx upon request. These demands in tandem allow FedEx to create a database of American gun purchasers and to uh, determine exactly what items they purchased. Um, this is a way to, I, it sounds to me like this is an attempt to circumvent search warrants. This, if, if this is something passed down from BATF, from the administration, to these shippers, 
you know, you may have, you know, privacy rights, but can can you claim privacy rights when it comes to a shipping receipt, a billing label? The federal government could go to these uh, FedEx uh, and 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 UPS and and get a warrant, and you wouldn't be able to stop them. Why would the federal government be doing that? Gee, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they could find a way then to seize your guns or prosecute you for some alleged wrong. It's a little scary. It's kind of like when the Jean-Pierre, uh, the, the press secretary for the president, said they were watching Twitter very carefully. It's like, is there anything, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, is there anything that this administration isn't willing to trample on? God, I hate progressives. Speaking of hating progressives, and I know Brian is going to love this. You know who Sheldon Whitehouse is, don't you, Brian? The yes, Democrat sir. from uh-huh. Rhode Island. Uh-huh. Uh, well, apparently he has called for revoking a tax exemption for a conservative group <laughs> for not masking up and socially distancing during the pandemic. Oh, boy. Insisted on a slew of investigations of other conservative groups and pressured the Internal Revenue Service to expand its reach. A total of 176 pages of correspondence from and to White House was obtained from the IRS by a watchdog group, a conservative group, called American Accountability Foundation, using a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. It's abundantly clear that White House is trying to take the 87,000 new IRS agents and put them to work investigating me and my friends because he doesn't like their politics. This is a huge abuse that it it, it ought to have people screaming on both sides of the aisle. Kind of reeks of uh, Lois Lerner, doesn't it? Doesn't it, though? The story says Lois Lerner on steroids. He is literally sicking the IRS on conservative groups, trying to silence them because Democrats hate it when somebody else says something they disagree with. They should be silenced. We can't let them have their say. No, no. Quiet them down. Don't let them say. It, it didn't, you know, isn't that those, the way they those, ran Twitter and Facebook? Pretty what? much. Those individuals in Congress that use the IRS as a method to, to weaponize their political enemy should never be allowed to work in Congress again. They've been doing it for years. And Republicans have done it, too. Well, they should leave. They Richard should leave. Nixon did it. Uh, everybody. Removed. It's uh, The IRS is the most powerful weapon you have. Yes. And nobody is safe. Nobody. 874-9390, toll-free numbers, 800-529-5572. We're up against the clock here. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. MoFreedom.org. How can you endanger a fetus when you're not even pregnant? I'm dying to find out, aren't you? We will next.
on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 18 minutes after the hour, after 11. Glad to have you with us. Uh, it is Think Tank Thursday, and as such, Dave Rowland is in. And uh, he's brought to the table a host of uh, topics. I got to jump on this one first. I actually am familiar with it, but I'm, it, I think it's just fascinating. Uh, a woman was jailed for endangering her fetus, and she wasn't even pregnant. Dave, welcome. How are yeah, you? I'm doing great, Gary. Uh, you know, this is this is a case of good intentions gone wrong. Um, so Alabama has uh, adopted a fetal personhood amendment to its constitution, which means there are protections for an unborn child. But what this has brought about is... Uh, very aggressive policing, and in this situation, they ended up putting a woman in jail, and she wasn't even pregnant. Um, so she was being investigated by the Department of Human Resources. Uh, they thought that she might have been using drugs, and when they were investigating, they talked to one of the woman's daughters. It doesn't. The, I, I wasn't able to figure out how old the daughter was, but apparently the daughter suggested that her mother was currently pregnant and they treated that as gospel and and the woman offered to take a pregnancy test and she said she said look just give me a pregnancy test it'll come back negative you know i'm not endangering any fetus and um they refused to um they refused to give her a pregnancy test and she ended up having to to sleep in jail for 36 hours um, because they suspected that she was endangering a fetus that didn't actually exist. So how did they find out that she wasn't actually pregnant? Uh, she she started to get her period and oh my um, God. asked asked for um, for appropriate products to help deal with that circumstance. Uh, by the way, they never provided her these products. Um, I, it just just a really awful situation all the way around and um it, it raises a few different issues i mean on the one hand um i think you and i agree that that we would like to see some protections for for unborn babies but there has to be um other procedural protections not the least of which is make sure that someone is actually pregnant before you start imposing harsh penalties on them uh, for potentially endangering a fetus. Uh, at a bare minimum, I, I think that's a due process issue. Uh, at a bare minimum, you need to, to uh, take steps to determine whether the woman's actually pregnant or not before you start doing stuff like this. But it, it made me think a little bit, Gary, of a circumstance uh, a few years back when I only had one child, and I think Viola maybe was three years old or so, um, when, unbeknownst to me, she told a couple of people at church that we were expecting another baby, which was not true, absolutely not true. And so, again, that's, that's why I kind of thought it was important to try and find out how old was this child who said that her mother was pregnant. Because if we're talking about a child who's, say, under you know, five or six, you know, it easily could have just been something that the the kid made up or misunderstood, um, and yet they they acted on that and ended up treating her mother just horribly, um, without any good reason. So, is yeah, uh, is, go ahead. is the uh, 
is the mother suing? Uh, yes, yeah. The mother, the mother has filed a lawsuit. And, and, uh, and before you go too far, was it the yeah. prosecutor's idea to arrest and detain her, or was it the police? Uh, my understanding is that it was the police, but I, I could be mistaken on that. Well, with I, that, don't, I don't have a complete understanding of the of the uh, situation, but I believe that it was the police who made the decision. Well, if you want to sue police, there has to be a a precedent, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So, so we we run into the qualified immunity problem, um, where potentially they could say um, you can't sue us because we didn't know what we were doing was wrong. We we didn't know we couldn't do that. Basically, um, and um, you know maybe that will be applied here. I think one of the facts. So so qualified immunity usually requires there to be some precedent, some prior case that's pretty closely on point um, that where a court ruled that the action was unconstitutional and that is what is supposed to put the police officers on notice uh, about what they can and cannot do. But not always. There are some situations where the the behavior is so extreme that it does not require a prior case on point. And with this um, you know, with, with her being in prison, offering to take a pregnancy test, being denied a pregnancy test, and then the fact that she began menstruating while she was at the prison, um, which should have been a pretty good indicator um, about her pregnancy status, you know, uh, it, this is such an egregious situation that I would hope that um, the courts would not grant qualified immunity here, but it's it's certainly possible. Wow, uh, how embarrassing and how horrible for her! I, I really my my heart bleeds for her. I sort of feel badly about yeah. this. You know, you and I were at dinner uh, last week, and uh, I I I hit you with a question, a, a kind of a conundrum for libertarian conservatives like you and me, and it dealt with abortion. And uh, abortifactants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you and I believe that the war on drugs is ridiculous. There should be no war on drugs. And we also agree that um, the life of the baby is uh, important and should be protected. We're both pro-life. Yes. So if a woman wants to buy uh the abortion pill, and she lives in a state that prohibits abortion. Who wins? Um, yeah, that it, it's it's a very challenging question um, because uh, some of the some of the drugs that can be used to induce abortions have multiple other uses. And this is one of the things that some states are running into with um, their new abortion bans after the Dobbs decision last year is they're putting pretty strict restrictions on any sales of these drugs. And some of the, the people who have been prescribed these drugs, they're quite clear. Look, I've been prescribed this drug for this medical condition that I have that is completely unrelated to pregnancy. So why should I be punished? Why should I be deprived of my my medication um, when when it's clear that I'm not using it for 
abortive purposes. Uh, and, and I think that that's a real problem. And so one of the things that, of course, libertarians would suggest is that ultimately um, the, the government shouldn't be policing what people put in their bodies. Um, there is a distinction between saying that it's illegal to intentionally end the life of an unborn child and saying we get to control all uses of this particular drug because of how it might be misused. Um, and, and I think that you and I would generally agree that, um, that you can punish somebody who has been shown to intentionally cause the death of an unborn child while also at the same time opposing the regulation uh, of, of these drugs that could be used for that purpose. All right, so a pregnant um, woman... It's, it's a challenge to try yeah, and, a pregnant and woman that orders, A pregnant woman orders this over the internet. Uh, who gets charged with a crime, her or the people who provided the pharmaceutical? It depends on the state laws. Um, some states will regulate the sale and therefore, the, the penalty could fall on the company that sold the drug. Um, but other states uh, focus on the act of ending the life of an unborn child, in which case the person who actually takes or administers the drug would be uh, criminally liable. But it, it depends on how the state's laws are written. And so I, I couldn't say uh, specifically how any given state would, would deal with that. This this uh, has the potential to be a real quagmire, uh, and I wish in my own mind I could clearly see the direction to head in it. If you just turn the radio on, Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. Uh, live streaming police traffic stops, is it unconstitutional? And while we've only got a minute or so, and, and we can go into greater detail after the news... I would argue it is not unconstitutional, and uh, that would be my short answer. Yeah, let's set the table for this. Um, we've talked a lot about the First Amendment right to record law enforcement officers because that recording can then be, be used to inform the community about what the officers are doing, okay? Um, this question out of the Fourth Circuit involves not just recording but live streaming what is being done by a police officer that's the question the fourth circuit's trying to deal with and we'll we'll we can explore the questions that they asked at this hearing on the other side of the break all right well that's going to be fascinating also uh and we talked about this uh on the weekday program a couple days ago about this uh on tuesday i think uh this 19 year old girl who wanted to be with her father and he wanted her to witness uh, him, uh, his execution. And at 19, the, uh, the court said, nope, not old enough. And he has since been executed. Uh, I disagree with the, uh, the uh, judge's, uh, uh, opinion there, but we'll talk about that. And, uh, justices audibly surprised by the Biden administration's legal arguments um, and we'll, we'll tell you what those all were. And finally, Hawaii gun permit ruling sides with homesick Navy officer. So we got a lot of ground to cover. We'll do that in the next half hour with Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network.
is the Gary Nolan Show. It's 11.35. Glad to have you with us on a Think Tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is with us. MoFreedom.org is the guy that likes to sue the government to protect your freedom. We've got a case here of uh, law enforcement being live streamed on a traffic stop. And is it unconstitutional? Dave? Yeah, um, I, I think that it is unconstitutional for the police to prevent the live streaming, but that is actually what the Fourth Circuit is trying to decide. And given the way that a hearing went this past week, uh, they may disagree with me. So the facts of this case, Gary, are that um, uh, an African-American man had gone to Walmart, and when he was leaving Walmart, uh, he got pulled over by a police car, and before the, the officer got to uh, his window, he had already pulled up Facebook Live on his phone and started streaming um, the encounter. So basically anyone who wanted to could watch on Facebook Live as the interaction with the police officer was playing out. Now, this is different from if he had just started recording, right? So if he's recording, that does not immediately get broadcast to anybody else. It's stored on the device until it's later uploaded to YouTube or some other um, uh, outlet that would allow the publication of the recording. Now, here's one other important distinction. If you are live streaming, that can't be edited or censored. Okay, mm -hmm. so a lot of people get criticized for having made a recording. Uh, they then get blamed for editing the recording to make it look different than it actually was in real life. Um, there are all sorts of reasons that people might criticize someone who's made a recording for the way that it was done. Uh, but also, if you're making a recording and it's stored on the device, it can be deleted from the device. And that's another concern, is maybe the police officers take the device and then they delete the uh, recording off of the device and no one ever sees it at all. Um, so live streaming solves that problem. Live streaming makes clear this is happening in real time. It's not edited at all. The viewers are seeing things as they are happening. And it makes clear that there's no way that this can be deleted. It's going to be out there. So the court was looking at this, and part of the problem that we've got is that because we're dealing with a person who was pulled over while in a vehicle, courts have given police officers a lot of leeway when it comes to dealing with people in vehicles. They can force you to do things constitutionally, the courts have said, they can force you to do things because you were driving a vehicle that they could not do if you were just walking down the sidewalk. And so although the plaintiff here was really trying to emphasize the First Amendment aspect, his right to communicate to the world what was happening in this police stop, the court, the judges, said, you know what, we're really looking at this more like a Fourth Amendment issue. And that made, that kind of gave me chills because that suggests that the court is looking more at what the police are allowed to do instead of what the citizen is allowed to communicate. 
Um, now, as we always say, it is a fraught task to try and read tea leaves from an oral argument because you can't always tell what a judge is thinking just from what's said at oral argument. But sometimes what they say at oral argument can give you clues about what the outcome will be. If I'm looking at this from the standpoint of the plaintiff's attorney, um, if the judges are really trying to force the conversation toward the Fourth Amendment instead of the First Amendment, I'm not feeling really good about my client's chances there. Um, so the attorneys in this case, uh, the plaintiff's attorney, Sounds like they did a really good job of trying to explain the importance of being able to uh, live stream a traffic stop like this. Uh, it's not clear whether or not the judges are going to buy this, but I very firmly believe that citizens have a First Amendment right not only to record interactions with police, but to live stream them. And and here's part of the reason why, Gary. Um, I actually think that live streaming is far more communicative than just recording. Because if someone records something, there's no guarantee they're ever going to share that with anybody else. So in other words, the idea that it could be communicated is still relatively hypothetical. But if you are live streaming, you are actively communicating with whoever is watching that live stream. So I actually think that the First Amendment argument to be able to live stream encounters with police officers is significantly stronger than just the argument to record. Uh, but again, I do not know how the court is going to deal with this. The Fourth Amendment is one of the circuits in the country that has not yet ruled on the First Amendment question of uh, recording police. And so it is possible that they'll say, you don't have a First Amendment right to record the police at all, uh, and certainly that it doesn't extend to live streaming. But uh, hopefully we will have an answer on this sometime in the next few months. I wonder what would happen if ABC 17 had a camera crew uh, and a, you know, a, a sensitive mic, a parabolic receptor, something like that, and, mm -hmm. and recorded a police stop. Would that, would that be, in their minds, illegal? Well, so here's, this is actually a, a really important distinction, Gary. So the court specifically asked whether it made a difference that we're dealing with someone who is inside the car and part of the stop as opposed to a bystander. Um, what they have said is that most of the courts that have dealt with the right to record have been dealing with bystanders, not the people who were the subject of a search or seizure and that that may change the constitutional calculus um, that a bystander is not going to be perceived as directly interfering in the same way uh, as the subject of the search or seizure might be perceived as interfering with an investigation if they are actively recording. Uh, in other words, police are allowed to command those who are under investigation in ways that they are not allowed to command all bystanders. Uh, and we've talked about how there's certain, there's states that are trying to push the boundaries. Colorado, I think, had passed a law saying that you couldn't record within eight feet of a police officer. Um, so so there, there are states that are trying to kind of test the boundaries of what a bystander can do. But But thus far, courts have been much less open to 
the right of citizens to record if they are the ones who are actively involved in a uh, in a police stop. I don't know. It seems like a distinction without a difference. Dave Rowland is with us. MoFreedom.org. We've got a little while before we find out the outcome there. Uh, but uh, I will be curious uh, to have that followed up. Uh, justices audibly surprised by the Biden administration's legal arguments. Do tell. Yeah, so this is a case involving uh, the Administrative Procedures Act. And one of the questions involved in this case is uh, lower court's authority to issue nationwide injunctions. And you and I have talked about this to, before. Um, it's a highly partisan issue, Gary. Um, when you have a Republican in power, a Republican that holds the White House, usually you have conservative commentators who are highly opposed to the idea of nationwide injunctions because these nationwide injunctions typically limit the authority of the federal executive. And if your guy is the federal executive, then you don't want to have their power limited. But when the White House changes hands, all of a sudden, it's the folks on the left who are against nationwide injunctions. Um, and so it's, it's really just all about power. It's not so much about principle. But one of the really interesting things in this case is that the Biden administration, of course, now you've got a Democrat holding the federal executive branch. They're arguing that uh, these nationwide injunctions should not be allowed under the Administrative Procedures Act. Well, here's the interesting thing. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals gets a whole lot of the cases that end up resulting in nationwide injunctions because these are, are this is frequently the circuit where uh, lawsuits against the federal government or one of its agencies arise. They, they arise in the D.C. Circuit. And so judges that have served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they deal with this issue all the time. They have been part of innumerable decisions involving nationwide injunctions. And so what you saw at the Supreme Court this week was the Biden administration arguing to a Supreme Court that has three justices who previously served on the D.C. Circuit that they're not allowed to issue nationwide injunctions. And uh, as, as the headline said, <laughs> it actually drew an audible response from a couple of these uh, justices when the, when the government made this suggestion that the D.C. Circuit was not permitted to issue nationwide injunctions. And um, Chief Justice Roberts in particular, so the three, the three judges or three current justices who have served on the D.C. Circuit are Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and uh, brand new Justice Jackson. And all three of them just seem to scoff at the idea that uh, the D.C. Circuit Number one, isn't permitted to issue injunctions, but one of the arguments that was actually made is that the judges who have been issuing these injunctions were not paying close attention to the text of the statute. And Judge uh, Justice Roberts pushed back on that directly, and he was like, you've got to be kidding me, suggesting that uh, the judges on this circuit are just ignoring the statute. 
you know, of course it's our job to, to, uh, to interpret and to follow this statute. And we worked really hard to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I think it's likely that the federal government is not going to succeed on this particular point of this case. Um, but, but again, reading tea leaves from, uh, from oral arguments is not always uh, an accurate guide as to the ultimate outcome. We'll just have to see. All right, we've got two more cases that I'm interested in, uh, highly interested in, that you brought to the table. Uh, the Hawaii gun permit ruling. Uh, and also uh, automatic uh, sealing and, and expungement of minor offenses. So I'm going to do this quick commercial break and then rush you through these topics. It's Dave Rowland with us on Think Tank Thursday on The Gary Nolan Show. 11.53, Dave Rowland is with us, uh, mofreedom.org. Um, you got two cases here that I'm I'm really interested in. One of them, the Hawaii gun permit ruling. Give me some yeah, details. Yeah, that one that was really interesting. So, uh, Gary, as you know, Hawaii is one of the more restrictive states in the entire country when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. Mm-hmm. And they had a law on the books that uh, basically said it's one of these red flag laws that basically says if someone uh, has sought counseling for depression, they have to surrender their guns. Um, and so this uh, naval officer, um, or uh, not, not necessarily an officer, but a sailor, uh, was assigned to Hawaii, came to the state, brought uh, his lawfully owned guns with him, uh, and had to register them. And when he was answering the questions for registering them, he indicated that he had sought counseling um, largely because he was homesick. And so he answered truthfully, and they said uh, that, that, yeah, they were going to seize his guns. And so he sued and said, you, you can't do this. This violates the Second Amendment. Now, he filed this lawsuit before last year's decision in Bruin, and so uh, now that that decision has come down, that's the framework through which uh, the courts are required to view these kinds of of challenges. And uh, so the judge has stepped in and has prevented uh, Hawaii from from requiring him to, to give up his guns. Now, from what I understand, the ruling was more focused on the text of the law itself, not whether the law violated the Second Amendment, but if the if the city of Honolulu and the state of Hawaii ends up appealing this, then um, I do not see any sort of restriction like this uh, survive Second Amendment scrutiny. So, yeah, really, really strange case, but it also indicates uh, just how far some of these states are going to deprive people of lawfully owned firearms. You know, and I know they're they're really trying hard to find workarounds uh, so that they can have some form of gun control. Uh, right. And so far, it doesn't seem to be working, but they're tenacious and they will not stop. Automatic sealing or expungement of minor offenses is a trend that's starting to be discussed in Missouri and other states. 
Yeah, I got an email just last week uh, with a draft bill that hasn't been filed yet. Um, but essentially, people are recognizing that there are all kinds of downsides to um, leaving minor offenses on people's permanent records. And effectively, they're suggesting that, look, if we're dealing with a misdemeanor or, or something relatively minor, why don't we just expunge it, just take it off the books altogether? Uh, other states have, instead of taking it off the books entirely, they've said, well, we're going to seal those records so that they can't be accessed. So they're still there, but, but they're inaccessible, except uh, under specific circumstances. And so uh, California is, uh, has adopted a new law that would seal these records uh, but Missouri is contemplating the possibility of, of allowing expungement for these kinds of things. And, Gary, I think that's a good thing, um, you know, especially when we're talking about relatively minor offenses. I think that once people have kind of paid their debt to society, whether it's paying a fine or serving time in jail or whatever, um, I think then they need to let their past be in their past. And I think that, um, you know, if people ask questions and, and they have the choice of answering about, you know, something that happened in their past, I think that's between the, the person who had this offense and whoever's asking the question. I don't think that the government needs to be involved in it. And so expungement would basically uh, take the government out of that conversation. As far as we're concerned, the debt to society has been paid and we're square again. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is a promising development in the law, and we'll see what happens uh, in Missouri. We'll see whether they, they follow California's lead or whether uh, these past offenses are going to continue to be on the books and accessible to people. Well, I think there's a, a kind of a quirk in our law where you think that it's expunged and it's not. It's just, I, I, I guess it's just not uh, really... Um, Easily accessible. I don't know. It, it, we we don't expunge those things, right? I mean, once you've got that on, you can't buy a firearm legally. Oh well, yeah. So expungement does not necessarily fix the problem for people who um, are dealing with convictions that would prevent them from owning firearms. Um, so um, most of the times, those are going to be felonies, and those can't be expunged anyway. But uh, but there are certain misdemeanors that can also affect your ability to own a firearm, and and those. Yeah, even if you got an expungement, it doesn't make it doesn't restore your your right to own a firearm under most circumstances. And and I kind of have a problem with that. Uh, anyway, we don't have time to go into the detail. Uh, Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org slash donate because he may come to your rescue, and you might otherwise not be able to afford him. So donate now. Uh, Dave, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.